0: You are now listening to episode 83 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis, and this is my show. On this episode, I'm talking with a friend of mine named, well, he simply goes by Lobo. He chooses to remain mostly anonymous, so there are no links to anything in the show notes other than a description or definition of geodesy, which Lobo uh, clearly defines in the episode. And a side note, um, my previous guest on episode 82 was Rob Wolf, and we're not trying to be cheeky or funny by uh, this character named Lobo, It, it just worked out that way. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I thank you for listening. <laughs>
1: so here we are at long last.
0: Yeah, this is pretty wild. I'm talking to an anonymous character that I know from Twitter.
1: Yeah, like, well, I I guess I'm a little bit more anonymous than you are. And, and, uh, you know, there's reasons for that. But uh, uh, yeah, so what are we going to talk about today?
0: I don't have the faintest. Um, What is the science that you, what what type of scientist are you?
1: Uh, Well, I'm careful about calling myself a scientist because I don't do research. so I call myself an applied scientist. So what I do is I let other people who who are willing to have that sort of um, unique focus on one topic, and I just take whatever they do and I figure out what to do with it. So I'm a geodesist, G-E-O-D-E-S-Y. Geodesy is the, the science that I mostly use. Um, and geodesy is one of the most important Scientific fields, I think, in the world, but maybe one of the least known. I mean, I think you said you'd never even heard the word in one of the. I,
0: yeah, I, I immediately went to the Google. Yeah, the yep. Google.
1: <laughs> yeah, the Google knows all. Um, so, geodesy is, you know, the textbook definition in, in short is the study of the size and shape of the Earth. Uh, the location of points on its surface, the study of the gravity field, and, and uh, you know, the, the longer definition could go on and on. But fundamentally, it's the, it's the science of surveying. Uh, I don't mean surveying like you know Coke or Pepsi. I'm talking about land surveying, um, offshore surveying, anything where you need to put a point somewhere, you have to have geodesy involved. Uh, without geodesy, we don't have GPS, for example. So if I was to say, like, what are my my specialities, it would certainly be GPS. I I can tell you just about everything you'd ever want to know and probably a lot of things you don't want to know about GPS. So that's really what I've done for, my goodness, I'm the same age as you. I think we're almost the same age to the day, actually. So since 1993, 94, I've been doing this, so a real long time. Um, I also have specialities in applied mathematics, statistics, inertial navigation, Um, anything basically that involves putting something somewhere is what I do.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and since that time I've been mostly just drinking and smoking cigarettes. Well, I've
1: been drinking too and smoking other things. Does, does that
0: count? <laughs> it mean, counts too. I mean, I sort of,
1: I sort of do live in Holland. I mean, uh, we can also kind of get into into my weird life a little bit if you if you want to go there about why I'm always oh, moving just, around. There's just
0: there's, yeah, there's just so much uh, you screaming about taxation in Holland and oh man, and always always on the go.
1: Yeah, so I think I'm on the, I'm on the road uh, anywhere from 150 to 200 days a year, uh, which is a lot. And I sort of have a circuit worldwide that I, that I hit. And in short, that circuit is the Netherlands, Norway, the UK, Paris, Abu Dhabi, Singapore, West Africa, Brazil. Um, let's see, where else? Australia. I just got back from Australia. Basically what I do is I work for a very large uh offshore company. We're involved in positioning things offshore. So you know, we're not an oil company, we're just a bunch of nerds who, who could put things in places very precisely. And big company who,
0: who pay who pays for that and why?
1: So the oil companies, well, okay, for example, um there's several ways of looking at it, right? So first of all, let's say that oil companies are doing exploration. They're looking for new oil offshore. So what they do is they use these really, really big and really, really expensive boats uh, with a lot of really expensive equipment that is usually based on some form of acoustic signal processing. And if you are doing these exploration surveys, you really have to have incredibly accurate positioning for both the vessel and for the data, which has to be post-processed. I mean, if you, imagine if you shoot Okay, imagine a really big air gun, okay? If you put an air gun in the water, that, that acoustic wave is going to penetrate the surface of the seafloor if, uh, if it's loud enough. And then, of course, ultimately, that sound wave will reflect back out of the seabed. So you can shoot a really big air pulse down into the seabed and catch its reflection. And if you look at that V-shaped curve, or not a V-shaped curve, but a shape where the signal goes into the earth and comes back out... You can post-process that signal, and if you have clever enough people, they can tell you if there's potentially oil and or gas there, just looking at, the, uh, looking at the post-process data. But that involves really high precision. And when I say high precision, man, I mean high precision. Like we're doing GPS to the centimeter out in the middle of the sea. Well, not a centimeter. That's a bit of a lie. It's, it's you know, decimeter. Um, hmm. We can get it now, though. We just we've just released a technology in the last couple of years that actually gets us. Now this is in the middle of the ocean, right? Three centimeter horizontal positioning with GPS.
0: That's just fucking nuts. Absolutely nuts.
1: Uh, on land, I mean, on land we yeah. can do it into a, to a centimeter, and that's in real time. That's real time. Now, if you post process GPS data, you can get sub millimeter accuracies. <laughs> I mean it's mind blowing
0: how accurate does the device like say my phone need to be versus these, just the, the receiving end all right. or is it a two way no, is it totally it's not
1: dependent okay so first of all the way GPS works is it's a, t- a completely passive system and by that I mean the signal is broadcast from the satellites but there is no return signal from the equipment it's almost like television, right? It's just broadcast out there.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, and yeah. it's just
1: a radio signal. I mean, let's. I always uh, people ask me what I do for a living, and I just say I'm a professional talker because I, ultimately, what I do is I teach this stuff. Um, and you know, in my introduction to my GPS courses, I always just tell people just think of think of this as if I'm explaining it to your grandmother. And what I always tell people is that GPS is just a, a radio signal, and um, Okay, like if you're tuning in, to, I don't know, whatever you listen to in Cleveland. I think you're in Cleveland, right? Or Ohio somewhere. Uh, yeah,
0: Cleveland uh, College Radio, re- 89.3.
1: Okay, 89.3. So what is that? 89.3 is a, a frequency modulation. Some
0: frequency modulation. Okay,
1: so what's yeah. modulation? Modulation means that you effectively take two sound waves and combine them together. Or you can make it even more didactic and say that a, uh, it's a carrier wave. It's just a wave, right? So um, imagine a slinky. If you take a slinky and you pull it apart, you get those you know, continuous circles, right? That's okay. what a radio wave looks like. That's a that's a po- polarized, a circular polarized wave. It's just a carrier wave. And what's it carrying? Well, it's carrying data. So when the DJ speaks into the microphone, you know, his analog voice is converted to a digital, digital signal, which ultimately gets superimposed on the carrier wave 89.3. So that's what modulation is. It's just changing a, it's just changing a, a, a wave, putting data on a signal so the gps radio signal is really high frequency it's like in the gigahertz like 1.5 gigahertz bandwidth and all they do all the satellites do so the satellites actually this is really fascinating stuff the signal is generated by an atomic clock and the atomic clock just creates a wave and then the satellite superimposes some some data just zeros and ones on that carrier wave so it's modulated uh, on the satellite. And then what happens is, is that signal travels through space and the satellites are about 20,000 kilometers away. I work in kilometers. Uh, so I forgive, forgive me for your American yeah, that's audience.
0: Fine.
1: That's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just multiply by 1.6 and you'll be fine. Um, so the signal, once it reaches you know, the user, there's two different ways that that signal can be used. So let's answer your question about the phones or you know, if you've got a, a car satellite navigation or one of those handheld, like, Garmin e-trex things or whatever. All that's happening there is the device itself is creating a duplicate of that same wave, right? And they match up the two waves together. And by looking at the shift in the wave, you can calculate a time. Well, if you can calculate time and you can multiply time by velocity, you can get distance, because the signal travels at the speed of light. So we're basically inferring distance to the satellites by what's called code correlation. But the problem is that the satellites are synchronized to what's called UTC. Have you ever heard of UTC before? Universal Coordinated Time, right?
0: Universal Time. Yeah, so Mm -hmm.
1: the satellites are synchronized to UTC and that's another story. I mean, we could get into why uh, relativity is so important here and that's also a fascinating story. But satellites ultimately are synchronized to UTC, but the problem is that your handheld device, like your phone or whatever, is not synchronized to UTC. So the first problem we have to solve is how do you get time synchronization between your handheld device and satellites? So basically what happens is you turn on your GPS receiver, which is in your phone, right? Every phone has got a GPS receiver, and we shouldn't even call them phones. These things are bloody computers. Um, yep. oh, yeah. Oh
0: <laughs>
1: and once you've got four satellites in view mathematically what happens is the clock in the GPS receiver synchronizes with the clock on the satellites so what happens is, is your, your handheld phone then synchronizes your GPS receiver synchronizes and you've got effectively a synchronized clock that is not as accurate as an atomic clock but it's synchronized closely to UTC time and then once you've got the time problem solved you can compare the two signals I mean if you imagine... Um, you're generating my voice in Cleveland and I speak to you from Singapore, there's going to be a delay when you receive my voice. And if you look at that delay, that reveals the travel time of the signal from the satellite and then just multiply it by the speed of light. And now you have a distance to the satellite. Well, if you measure distances to multiple satellites, then you can just use a simple math to achieve the position of where you are.
0: How does it know altitude?
1: Interesting. Um, so GPS doesn't work in altitude. GPS, uh, or actually altitude, you have to define altitude, right? Altitude is the height above a surface. There's elevations, which is defined as the height above sea level. But then there are, in my world, we work in heights. So let's define a height first, okay? So here's what I want you to do. Put your put your palm out in front of you, face up. Mm-hmm. Put, your finger, yeah. put your middle finger up, put your forefinger out, and extend your thumb at a right angle. So now you've got like three perpendicular fingers, right? So yeah. your middle finger is the z-axis. So the way that GPS works is that three x, y, z-axis is a coordinate system. Right? You've done, you remember in high school, x and y, Cartesian yes. coordinates? Okay, so we work in x, coordinate systems. And I'm sorry, I'm not saying the word Z, I say Z. And we can, and we can get into the reason why I, I say that later. But uh, so basically, the whole world of GPS works in an XYZ coordinate system. So the center of that coordinate system is the center of the Earth. Right? So, Wait,
0: whoa, 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 whoa. That, it's this, I was wondering this. Okay, the center of the Earth?
1: The center of mass is, of the Earth. Yes. Really? Yes. Oh,
0: okay. All right.
1: But the problem with that is it's not a fixed point, it changes, so... Uh, yeah, I was going
0: to say, <laughs> how do you... Yeah,
1: so, ge- <laughs> so in geodesy, we have some serious challenges, because you have to calculate for the geokinematics of the Earth, and that's just a fancy way of saying that the Earth moves. Uh, the tectonic shifts, of there's 20 tectonic plates on the Earth, they're constantly in motion. Um, you've also got the mass inside the Earth that is also rather dynamic. So there is no fixed center of mass of the Earth, but we can measure it. There's ways of doing that, and I'll be happy to explain how that's done. Um, so we probably know where the true center of mass of the Earth is within a centimeter at any given time, which is also mind-blowing because, you know, the Earth is, the Earth is big, right? It's 60, what is it, 6,378 kilometers in its average radius, you know, it's,
0: Somewhere around twenty-five thousand well, miles. Well, that's the circu-
1: that's the circumference. I'm talking about okay. I'm talking about the actual radius of the Earth, right? Which is oh, the radius. Yeah, okay. the radius. So, uh, you know, it's it's a big thing. But we know where that geocenter, and I say geocenter, it's not technically the geocenter, it's center of mass, but we call it the geocenter. So we know where that gotcha. is within a centimeter, right? So basically, when you get a coordinate with GPS, you're getting an XYZ coordinate in that Cartesian frame. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how high are you above the Earth's surface? And this has always been the greatest challenge in geodesy is solving the vertical problem. Um, because with GPS, you have one inherent bias in the what we call the solution, and the solution is your position. And the bias is that the satellites are always above you and they're never below you. So your horizontal position is always better than your vertical position by a factor of two Or three, usually. So uh, how then do we know our altitude? Right. Well, first of all, you have to know where mean sea level is. Because all of our, uh, you know, if I always say how high is the Statue of Liberty or how tall is the Eiffel Tower or how high is Mount Everest. So Mount Everest is what, 14,448 meters above what? Above mean sea level. So that becomes our zero point for for height or elevation around the world. You know, in the States, when you go into a new town, they always have the elevation on the... Yeah, yes, (laughs) yeah. So how do they know that with GPS? Well, what they have to do, and we can define some terms here. I don't know how interesting this is, but the the biggest challenge in the world of geodesy always has been to measure this thing called the geoid. And what the geoid is, uh, in short, is the mathematical shape of the Earth at mean sea level. And if you could imagine, like, um, like a round potato, that's what the Earth looks like, right? The surface of the Earth obviously is not a perfect sphere, right? Uh, so, but what we're interested in is what the shape of the Earth is at sea level, and we can measure this by measuring gravity, because if you can measure gravity, you can infer mass, and then if but you can. What
0: the, But wait, 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 wait. What the hell is sea level?
1: Sea level. Okay, so there is no such thing as sea level. We keep
0: referring to that, but (laughs) what the hell does that mean?
1: Okay, so uh, since I guess, I'm going to guess sometimes in the 1800s, we've been measuring um, tidal variations around the world. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of these uh, monitors out there. And uh, what we can do is we can mathematically... Uh, establish like a zero point for the oceans around the world that excludes tidal variations. Because, you know, the, the world is a 4D system, right? It's XYZ plus time. So things are always changing and nothing changes as rapidly as the oceans. I mean, any, a child could tell you that, right? I mean, if you've ever been living in a place where you've got high low tides, uh, mm-hmm. you can see this. So the ocean is always is highly dynamic. So what we have to do is we have to monitor these sea level changes around the world so that we can come up with a a zero point, effectively. So when you see an elevation, and that word elevation is specific, it doesn't mean height. It means the the distance above this arbitrary plane called mean sea level. So that just provides us a zero point for up and for down. In, in the non-geodetic world, right? Because you could possibly, like in Holland, you know, where I, I sort of live, you know, a lot of it is below sea level, right? Or below mean, right, below, right. Or below mean sea level. So once you've, mm-hmm. geodetically, and when I say geodetically, what I mean is you've built like a sort of global model of, of, of mean sea level, what you can do is, and this is gonna get a little complicated, okay? So here's the problem. Oh, wait,
0: So, so but the, the sea level's a bit of a fiction, then. It is,
1: complete fiction. It's, it, 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 exi- okay. it exists only on a piece of paper.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, you
1: have what we call, let's say, the instantaneous sea surface, like if you're on a vessel or a boat and uh, you have tidal swells and, or, uh, or whatever. You know, your, your vertical position is going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. So what we're sort of looking for is that, that, you know, that middle line that goes right through that, that curve, right? So, um, you know, in geodesy or in GPS, everything goes back to this XYZ sort of system. But here's the problem. If you think of a potato, right, and you think that's the surface of the earth, you cannot do surveying on that surface, because the rules of Euclidean geometry, Pythagorean trigonometry, they only work if you have a consistent surface. So that's why so it
0: need to be a perfect sphere. A
1: right. sphere, but the Earth is actually ellipsoidal in shape because, as, right, as right. you know, why? Right? Because as it rotates, it causes mm-hmm. the centrifugal force of the Earth causes a bulge at the equator. Technically, the Earth is shaped like a pear, actually. There's a bit of a bulge at the North Pole and a bit of a divot on the South Pole. So it's technically pear-shaped. We found that out in the 50s when we put satellites up into space because you can infer mass from gravity, right? And you can't measure gravity that well on the Earth. You can, but it takes so much work from satellites. It's so much easier because you can just look at the, the disturbances to their orbits and you can infer gravity from that and from which you can infer mass. So what happens is, in, in surveying and with GPS, is that we make a model of the Earth that is an ellipsoid. But it's only an, an approximation, right? So if you took like that circular potato and you tried to fit the best sphere you could to that potato... Parts of it are going to be above the potato. Parts of it are going to be below the potato. So you just make a mm-hmm, reference mm-hmm. surface. And on that reference surface, you can measure two things called latitude and longitude. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Which are just angles, right? But, They're just angles is all they and are. One,
0: and one other thing. I, well, I think I learned from a physicist once that uh, there is no force uh, centrifugal. But there is centripetal force. Uh, centripetal force, I think, is the op- And centrifugal is just uh, an effect that we just gave a name to, but the actual force would be centripetal.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think it's just, uh, well, look, one of my big gripes about science, especially Newtonian science, which is the study of things at a large scale, the opposite of that, not the opposite, but the, the, the you know, there's quantum physics and there's Newtonian physics, right? So Newtonian physics is the physics of the big and quantum physics is the physics of the small and Mm-hmm. When you hear about these like unified theories, what Einstein was really trying to do was to unify Newtonian physics with quantum physics and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in Newtonian physics, you know, you, you, you have, uh, you know, you use math to explain things and just because the numbers fit, therefore it's true. Like uh, you can't go faster than the speed of light, which I think is patent bullshit, um, you know, explaining gravity in terms of mathematics. And again, I think there's big problems with that. And I'm real happy to talk to you about that too. But, uh, so what we ultimately have to do in geodesy then is we have to find this reference ellipsoid. And then everything is measured on that ellipsoid, the position. Mm -hmm. But what about your height, right? How high are you above this ellipsoid surface? So what we do in short is we build a relationship between quote-unquote mean sea level and that ellipsoid surface. And if
0: you... do, the, do the satellites have a, a little bit of a bounce or bend to their shape, or do they, are they in a, an ellipse? Is it smooth, circular? How does that?
1: Okay, so there's, a, I think at last count, 31 GPS satellites, but there's also the Russian system, which is called GLONASS. There's a European system called Galileo, and there's a Chinese system called Baidu. And aggregating those satellites now, I think we're up to upwards of 80 satellites that can be used in quote-unquote GPS. Now, GPS is just a brand name. Just remember that. GPS is the brand of American military satellite navigation. Okay. the whole ah, okay. The, okay, so the, right. what we do now is we call it GNSS, the Global Navigation Satellite System, which comprises American GPS, Russian GLONASS, Chinese Baidu, and European Galileo. So, the way the satellites work is that they're the, one of the, like if you go back to like 68, 70, around there, this is sort of when the idea for GPS was posited. Because, of course, you know, and I always open my, my training courses with this question I always ask people, what is GPS? And I say GPS specifically, what is it? Well, who made it? Department of Defense. So, therefore, GPS is technically a weapon. I mean, they didn't build it so you could uh, use Google Maps to find a pub where you're meeting a girl. You know, they built it so they could locate submarines in the middle of the ocean so, well, they, could, that, so that, they could shoot nukes but at that people. that is a weapon. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> it's <not> a weapon.
1: <laughs> what girl, girls are a weapon? <laughs> no,
0: uh, the, the man enabled with GPS to seek out a gal in a pub. <laughs> You've just created a weapon.
1: I think life is a weapon, man. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh so the satellites one of the big problems that they had was you know for you to know where you are you have to know where the satellites are well that's not as easy as you might think because the earth's surface or shape of the earth not surface but the actual inner shape of the earth is not perfectly round not perfectly spherical so therefore it's impossible to have orbits the satellite orbits that are completely predictable so if you don't know where the satellites are you're never going to know where you are So predicting the orbits of the satellites is a really big challenge. So basically what they do is they just have um, these monitoring stations all over the earth. I think GPS uses about 12 of them so that the satellites are constantly being tracked. And then they just put the data into what's called a Kalman filter. And this Kalman filter is just a mathematical tool to sort of predict, predict things mathematically. And they basically predict the orbits as best they can get the orbit which is disturbed by gravity, it's disturbed by the pull of the moon, it's disturbed by the pull of the sun, it's disturbed by solar wind, it's disturbed by gases leaking out of the satellites because you have to remember uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction and in zero G that's really profound. So. They have to really know where the orbits are, so the satellites themselves are let's say just they are just what they are. It's just where they are is that's the that's the real question if if that makes sense
0: mm-hmm. in a way i I know um for us uh I, I say us, uh, me and some friends, we used to travel the um the deserts of the west, meaning the United States, and um we'd be out in say, some desert in Utah late at night, and uh, some people would be stoned out of their minds, the rest of us drunk out of our minds, and you'd see one object in the sky not behaving like the others, and then we would all go into deep think about what this thing was. Is You know, the stone, most stoned person would say it's obviously a UFO, and then uh, the least drunk of us would realize it was a satellite, because it would just kind of bounce and kind of correct and it was kind of like seemingly trying to keep some position but it was moving hmm
1: well um, that probably wasn't a satellite then because satellites do not have any jitter in their orbits Uh, the orbits if you look at them with a naked eye are for all intents and purposes effectively spherical or ellipsoidal depending on how the orbit has been set up uh so anything that course corrects in space is definitely not a satellite man
0: Gotcha. See By like the way I said, by the we way were all, I we couldn't... were all drunk and stoned <laughs> in the desert so <laughs> well I,
1: I you know that's all, that, I also endorse that but uh by the way there is a cool little app uh maybe you and your six listeners Going with Rob Wolf's line, um, right? Right. <laughs> they can't be wrong, right? There's an app called Night Sky that I use, and uh, this app called Night Sky will, will you know, it knows where you are, and using the accelerometer in the phone, you can actually, it actually knows how you're tilting the phone. So if you tilt it up to the sky, it knows where you're looking, and it'll show you all the constellations. But it'll. Oh all... yeah,
0: I think. what which one did you say? Night which Sky. One? Night Sky. Yeah, I think yeah. I use Skywalk. Okay. Yeah.
1: But the other thing it does, if you buy the $5 premium version, it will also show you where things like the International Space Station are. So sometimes I'll just sit on my, you know, wherever I am, I'll try and, you know, look up in the sky at the right time. And you can see the ISS, uh, you know, making its quick um, pass up and down the horizon. So, you know, anything like a space station, a satellite... Uh, just by physics alone, it would be basically impossible for it to have a a jittery orbit. And if it did, it would probably just get, it would get ripped to pieces if it did.
0: I I, I see. Yeah. Especially, we're talking about insanely high altitude uh, satellites,
1: Right, twenty thousand kilometers. So there's basically right. three three levels of, of things floating in space. There's low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, and high Earth orbit. So let's go through those real quick because there's some interesting but things re- here.
0: If you but do, the if, high one, you, right. you have to you'd have to correct for the speed of light, right?
1: Okay, so now you're getting the really interesting things because uh, you know what does relativity tell you? Well, it tells you that that uh, there's a really big um, component of you know velocity and mass and ultimately time that is, they're all intertwined. So earlier I said that the satellite signal itself is generated by an atomic clock, right? So here's where Einstein made GPS possible. Because the clock itself has to generate a specific frequency and that frequency is 10.23 megahertz, exactly. Not 10.2300001, but 10.23 megahertz exactly. So that's what the satellite clock, the rate of the clock is on the satellites. And each satellite has three or four clocks for redundancy. Um, But the problem is that if you set that clock to 10.23 megahertz on Earth, well, because the gravity is lower in space at 20,000 kilometers, the clock would actually increase its clock rate. So what they have to do is they have to slow the clocks down, I think to like 10.299945 or something like that. So that when it reaches its orbit, the clock then is at a stable rate of time, if that makes sense. So that's where you- Yeah, but then when
0: it's, yeah, and then when it speeds up, say, let's just say as it leaves gravity, time changes. And then as it's flying at this insane speed, relative to the earth four kilometers a second clock then yeah jesus yeah then doesn't its (laughs) clock also change
1: okay so um there were like five really big challenges that they had to solve with gps uh one of them was the fact that they knew that they had to use an atomic clock to generate the signal but nobody had ever put one in space before So, atomic clocks were invented, like, I don't know, late 40s, early 50s. Um, And, you know, the first GPS satellite was launched in 77, 78, something like that. And it was the first time anyone had put an atomic clock in space. And, you know, these are really precise instruments. But when you're in space, you've got, well, of course, you've got the force vectors. I mean, you're traveling at four kilometers a second. You've got um, vibrations. And these clocks were not designed for that. So someone not only had to figure out how to make GPS work. I mean, there were other challenges as well. I mean, GPS is a perfect example of multidisciplinary science. So some poor mechanical engineer, electrical engineers had to figure out how to space harden these atomic clocks. And
0: I have, I have to interject here. Go for it. I I have a feeling that those scientists, those engineers were not out marching with protest signs in support of science
1: dude it's uh
0: they, they had they had <laughs> science to do
1: <laughs> yeah i mean we could certainly take this conversation in a whole other direction sorry. right sorry now. sorry uh, but
0: that just
1: uh, yeah it just did, I, I I, i certainly didn't have pink vagina hats when they were in their offices uh either But, uh, yeah, so uh, the real problem, if you really want to get down to it, is the clock stability, is how stable those clocks are, because um, if the clock isn't stable, then you don't have a stable signal. And if you don't have a stable signal, then you don't have a stable position. For example, I'll tell you something here. Um, Up until the year 2000, the United States government, or the Department of Defense, would would put into the GPS signal a time bias, and this time bias was regularly altered, so you never were able to solve what the bias was. It was something called selective availability. So if you look at the language, and I'm a, as you know from my Twitter feed, I'm a big proponent of correct, We're well not correct use of language, but you know, being careful with language. So selective availability, what does selective availability mean? It means the government is going to select when good accuracy is available. And so up until the year 2000, if you had a, like a handheld type GPS receiver, your position was, I mean, quite frankly, it was crap. Uh, many, many, many meters of, of, of error. I mean, today, if your handheld, is probably about four or five meters in terms of its precision. But until the year 2000, the government would, would really, really, you know, mess with the signals. Now, there is another way that you can use GPS that involves really, really expensive GPS receivers, and that's what we do, and we were never affected by that because that part of the signal cannot be altered by, by uh, electronic means. But the, let's call it the low-accuracy type GPS stuff, which is the, the commercially available stuff. You know, uh, the clock generates the whole signal. So if you mess with the clock, then, then it's rubbish. And of course, you know why they did that, right? It's a weapon. And if GPS is basically... I mean, one of the things about GPS that I find amazing is it's... And I've thought about this really hard. Can you think of anything else that the U.S. government has done that affects the world in a positive way that they give away for free? I mean, it's free to use GPS.
0: Right, right. That always did puzzle me.
1: You know, it's just there. So what they did is there's actually two GPS signals. It's called the L1 and the L2 signal. And those are just the carrier waves. And on those carrier waves, they put the codes. And those codes are just the data that the receiver uses to measure its satellite distances. Well, on the L1 signal, which is the, let's call it the... Uh, what am I looking for here? Non-military signal.
0: Yeah, like citizens band. C- exactly, c- <laughs> c-
1: civilian band. Like CBS, the CB yeah. radio of uh, <laughs> the CB radio of GPS. Well, on the L two signal, what they did is they put a different code, a different a different signal um, called the P code, and the P code is the protected or precise code, and that is for military receivers. So that was never affected. So the idea was that if there's ever a war. And the enemy is using GPS also because, you know, why wouldn't they? Because it's free and it's global. There would be the ability for the US government to degrade the signal so much as to make it unusable, but their protected code, their precise code, was never affected by this, right? Mm. And that code, yeah. that yeah. data can, yeah, and you can get, I mean, you can get, you've always been able to get sub meter accuracy with that, you know. Um, And if you're just tracking assets on the battlefield, like tanks and whatever, I mean, that's perfectly, perfectly good enough, right?
0: Yeah, I do remember this now, um, reading about how they um, actually increased the accuracy to the public sometime in the early 2000s, Uh, if memory serves me.
1: Yeah, so what they did is the way they did that was, um, well, actually, they, they, they wanted to increase the accuracy for a lot of reasons um a lot of it had to do with pressure from just the whole world to say look you know you're giving us this tool you keep degrading the signal uh bill clinton i was actually at a conference i think i was in edinburgh um and i and when they announced that they had turned off this selective availability and i've never seen so many happy nerds in my whole life i mean it was hmm. it was pretty pretty funny yeah so after that happened you know, in the early 2000s, that's when GPS really, really took off in terms of you know, yeah. everybody using it. So what they did to improve the accuracy, the big, the big problem was is that they didn't have enough um, stations around the world to track the clock accuracies and track the orbit accuracies. In fact, I think until around 2005 or 2006, it might have been, there was a couple of hours a day when each satellite was not being tracked. So they just built more monitoring stations Getting more data, you know, what's the biggest driver of statistics? It's redundancy. So the more data you have, the better you can predict the clocks, predict the orbits. And therefore, we now have, you know, what I would consider pretty ridiculous accuracy for, for, I mean, you can buy a GPS chip. I mean, what do those chips cost in the iPhone, in the Samsungs? I mean, they're probably a buck, maybe two bucks Uh, at this point. God knows how cheap they are. But wow. uh, but you can even go a little further with this and talk about how how GPS works with like Google Maps on your phone. And that's a whole nother level because...
0: Yeah, I was actually thinking of um, uh, autonomous, self-driving cars like Tesla.
1: Right, so how do they work and how, how accurate is that? So here's, the, here's where it gets k- kind of interesting and also a little bit creepy. Um, so basically when you're using your iPhone, you're using augmented GPS. So it's GPS plus something else. So what is that something else? Well, um, <clears throat> as I said earlier, you know, you can, if you post-process GPS data, you can get accuracy to the millimeter. So all of those cell towers that, you have, that are out there, cell phone towers, they've all been positioned with GPS post-processed and they know those positions to a millimeter. So if you're, you. if yeah. you're near a cell tower, Uh, And I believe this is the way it works. I might be wrong, but I think the way it works is they use. So let's say, you know, you're standing near four or five cell towers. Um, They'll use the relative signal strength of your phone to those cell towers to sort of do some tricky math to give uh, a coordinate of where you are. But also, (laughs) and (laughs) this is what this is really creepy, man. Um, you know those Google vans that drive around and they take pictures of stuff, and yes. they, they mm-hmm. have all that fun fancy equipment on the roof. You know, so what they're doing is they're 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 putting positions on Wi-Fi signals, like hotspots. Um, I even think, and I'm, I'm I have I, I'm really digging deep into my bad memory here. I think they actually got busted for for position putting latitude and longitudes on people's MAC addresses on their Wi-Fi routers. So your Wi-Fi router sort of became a point in Google's giant point cloud.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So if there's a Wi-Fi hotspot that you're nearby, your phone will know where it is. And so GPS plus the cell towers plus Wi-Fi. Like, look, man, if you're walking down the street, you know what side of the road you're on with GPS with with your phone.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right?
1: Yeah. So... Then self-driving cars, I mean, okay, so look, here's what's going to happen in the next, mm, let's say not 10 years, maybe a little longer. So I told you that it's possible in real time to get centimeter accuracy in real time, right? But that requires pretty expensive antennas for the, the receivers and the receivers, the GPS receivers themselves have to be pretty expensive. But you know what? Look, anything in science, anything in engineering ultimately becomes commodified. And GPS has become commodified, but the low-precision GPS is commodified. So when it's going to get really freaky is when high-precision GPS becomes commodified. And it's on its way now, and eventually, I mean, there's going to be a day when your phone or any GPS will be, you know, centimeter accuracy. But here's where it gets even worse is, well, what happens when you go inside? GPS doesn't work, right? Because the signal is really weak. I mean, think of, think of a light bulb in space and you're looking at a light bulb in space, that's about how strong the signal is. That's why it doesn't work in the trees. That's why it doesn't work inside, underground, etc. Yeah, yeah. But another thing that I do is I am involved in inertial navigation. And inertial navigation means that you have these sensors that can measure change in position. They don't measure position. They measure change in position. So if you have an initial position like outside a building and then you walk inside a building, the inertial sensor will take over and it will measure the change since your last known position. You follow me?
0: Yeah, sure, Okay, Absolutely. so that
1: yeah. means you can probably be in a building and then the system will know what office you're in, what floor you're on, which, mm-hmm, way, mm-hmm. which way you're pointing. Even the direction you're yeah, pointing. Yeah, I mean,
0: the, the <laughs> phone already has inertial sensors built Absolutely, in. That's how you can play video games that you actually move right. the phone exactly to change your view. Yeah, but yeah.
1: they're but they're crap. Okay, they're real crap. Um, here's an interesting thing. So how do you how Mag- do,
0: magic crap?
1: <laughs> magic crap. Yeah. So there's levels of crap, right? Um, so like a like an ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile. How does it know? to fly through the sky over an ocean and hit a target within X number of meters. Well, inside that missile is a million dollar inertial navigation system, just like the one on your phone, except it costs a million bucks.
0: And I guess in older times, they would have to probably plant some target uh, device that would emit some signal in a building to bomb that building?
1: Uh, actually, that never happened. Um, no? No, never, huh. never happened like that. I mean, that's pretty good reasoning on your part. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out that way. There's other ways that, other ways that they did it. You know, inertial navigation is, has been going on for a really long time. It's just now at a point where, I mean, here's something really freaky that I just learned.
0: Um, well, there went my crappy sci-fi novel. Yeah, well, <laughs> but hey,
1: it never—it st- didn't stop about ten thousand other people from writing one, so why should it stop right, you? Right, right, yeah. Uh, so I recently learned something really freaky, and this—this this made me sit down and 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 just hold on to something for a couple of minutes. Um, <clears throat> so historically, one of the problems that submarines have had is, you know, where the hell is it? If you're on the surface, well, you can get a lock to a GPS satellite, and you can get an exact position. But if you go under the water, the submarine then is reliant on its inertial systems. And those things do something that's called drifting. Uh, over time, they'll drift uh, because they, they ultimately need to be corrected by some kind of outside positioning source. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it, yeah, it can't know where it is relative to anything outside of itself after some period of time. Yeah.
1: Precisely. Precisely. That's very well put. Um, so what they can do now is they can, like if you, I think if I remember correctly, like if a submarine would sur- would go to the surface, get a position fix, go down underwater for 24 hours, I think historically it could surface within something like a kilometer of that previous position. I may be wrong on that, but that's something in my memory tells me that, um, but now, <laughs> these things can stay submerged for thirty days with zero degradation.
0: That's that's just it's just it kind of breaks the laws of Einsteinian physics about not knowing where you are without looking outside of yourself. Like you it's can't a, know your relative position or speed without measuring something else you're Underwa- saying that it's that's just nuts
1: yeah and i mean i do a lot of what i do involves um positioning things underwater uh using inertial systems acoustic systems is another way that we work for example if you've got a a, a, a sub-sea, like uh, one of the things that we use are called rovs remotely operated vehicles and they're like these box looking robot things that are tethered to a surface vessel and they've got like mechanical arms on them so when you're installing like I mean look man when you're getting oil out of the ground you have to install an incredible amount of stuff on the seabed pumps wells risers uh, I mean you would not believe the amount of not only money that is spent but the amount of tech that it takes to, to, to develop an offshore oil field. So we have these remotely operated vehicles that go down and they have robotic arms that screw things together and blah, 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 blah. But they need accurate positions. Well, how the hell are you going to get an accurate position on an ROV at, you know, a 1,000 meters, 2,000 meters, 3,000 meters? So you have to measure speed, position, and using acoustics, like you can bounce signals off the seabed and the ROV can use that return signal to track its speed. I mean, and I'm talking about within... 0.001 0.001 of a meters per second probably and then using like um uh pre-deployed like you can put these these things on the seabed that are called transponders and they'll ping an acoustic signal and if you have enough of them the rov can get like a centimeter position on the seabed no matter the water depth
0: Mm-hmm.
1: it's freaking crazy man it's absolutely just, un- insane what nuts. we can do nuts uh, it's,
0: what's crazy to me is that this is all going on and no one knows or really gives a shit. You're just concerned about the price of the gas pump or their electric bill.
1: It costs a million dollars a day to operate an oil rig. Think about that. A million dollars a day just to operate the rig. I mean, even like these big exploration vessels that are out at sea. It's a million, a million five a day just to operate it. And that's just the rig. I mean, you're not talking about the boats, the supply vessels. Yeah, the... Uh, And I'm not justifying oil companies by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're all cunts, but um, it costs so much money to get oil out of the ground, especially offshore. It's astonishing. Astonishing.
0: Wow. I guess this adds layers of complexity to international politics regarding oil exploration and motivations of nations to get the, that precious black gold still. Well, you know how
1: that works, right? They what they do is they auction off the land to the oil companies. So, like, let's say, um, if you look at what's going on in the world right now, I can tell you exactly where all of the work is being done for for oil. I mean, everywhere. West Africa is probably the busiest place in the world right now, and I mean Nigeria, Angola, uh, specifically. And what they'll do is they'll say, okay, we got this, um, we found you know, all of this oil. Uh, let's say they found the oil, let's go there first. And what they'll do is they say, well, we, we think there's oil here, and they'll go to all the major oil companies and they'll just basically have a bidding war. But, let's go even before that. There are companies, right? And this is this is where I really get, like, I can't believe the numbers involved here. There are companies who basically will just buy all of these boats. And, you know, these boats are 50, 60, 70 million a piece. God knows how many more millions in hardware to, to do the surveying. And they'll just say, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to go look for oil. And then we're going to sell the data.
0: Ah. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh. So... I mean, I don't really know the inner workings of like where it goes from the first survey of an unexplored piece of the earth to ultimately drilling. I don't want to know because I'm sure that it involves a million layers of corruption. But you're just talking. You mean you're talking? Just it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's astonishing.
0: Wow! It really is. That's fucking fascinating. I fuck. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I was um listening to that um recent uh a uh, uh, recent Joe Rogan interview with some financial guy. He was a bit of a an interesting old man guy and he said um he was he's known for p- pretty decent forecasting, which is obviously bullshit. But um he said when um the numbers are more accurately announced about the amount of oil that was uh, we actually not we but that is actually available in say i think it was saudi arabia would actually be in the trillions of barrels versus the millions or hundreds of millions that they currently say i found the conversation rather fascinating it's all bullshit it's all bullshit
1: man you're absolutely correct what they tell you is completely wrong i mean it's like diamonds are not a rare a rare thing i mean i think everybody probably knows that now It's all obfuscated to make things look like they are uh, limited, precious commodities. Yeah, there
0: there is no peak oil.
1: No, absolutely not. And in fact, I'm all I'm, you know, I'm not trying to start some kind of shit. Stir the shit pot here, but I'm increasingly more on the in the camp that oil is an abiotic abiotic substance, and by that I mean it's just something that the Earth produces itself. I think this whole dead dinosaur thing, fossil fuels, is complete nonsense, um, and we're learning more and more that the the likelihood of of oil being dead dinosaurs is probably bullshit. So I I don't use the term fossil fuels anymore. Um, you know, and then this conversation could, of course, lead into the inevitable climate change conversation, and that would probably exactly. Stir-
0: That's <laughs> where I was thinking next is that um, I I don't talk about this much because there's there's no good conversation to have about it, say mm-hmm. on social media. Right. I don't believe in um, human human caused climate change. This catastrophic global mo- modeling. I, I don't believe in that. Yet, I also believe that it's pretty foul business, and that if we can do something better, um, I'd be a proponent of pursuing other ways. I, I do believe that there are filthier fuels and perhaps healthier fuels, but I, I don't. Um, I just would like to see a change in the conversation.
1: Mm. So, uh... in pursuit
0: of of fuel, and I know that alternative fuels are also toxic because they some require battery storage and batteries are insanely toxic but most likely more toxic than just burning some damn oil
1: yeah i mean this is yeah i mean there's a million ways i could respond to this i mean first of all i have a real problem with the word believe in this context uh you don't believe in science any more than you believe in the fucking tooth fairy um you know science Scientism is a real problem. I think that's sort of been going on on our timelines lately too. Uh, Neil Tyson catches a lot of shit for his scientism, and it's you know I saw so-
0: he, he should he should and he should catch more. He's the most <laughs> arrogant, self-aggrandizing, uh, attention whore, media <gasps> bullshit artist because he, he claims that he's only speaking this this truth. Truth, right? And it's it's just bullshit. I have this conversation a few times with folks, and we talk about um, the the old program Cosmos right? from the Carl Sagan era. That was an actual book and then a, a wonderful TV series. And when Carl Sagan hosted it and talked, he talked about unknowing and a challenge of, of gaining knowledge and wonderment and how biology is just insanely impossible for us to ever conquer and that physics we've got a few things lined up we're we're doing some good work here but in but with then when neil degrasse tyson does his cosmos it's just this cut and dry, cut and dry. it's a, it's bullshit i i hate it i hate it
1: mm. Mm. Um, yeah, man, I'm trying to think of the best way to respond to this. So, so what I think, that, you know, and I don't know how much your, your six listeners know about this concept of scientism, but um, a good way to explain scientism is that just because something can be explained with mathematics, uh, it's therefore true, which I alluded to earlier in the conversation about my issues with Newtonian physics. Uh, you know, all these formulas, you put numbers in, you get answers, and therefore, look, the numbers don't lie. Well, you know, here's the thing about what a good scientist should be. A good scientist should always be trying to prove his or herself wrong. Wrong, yeah. When you have a hypothesis, your goal is not to prove the hypothesis. The goal is to disprove the hypothesis. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, we, I think we both agree on this. Not but, much but else all the, needs to be said. But all it. the
0: money, yeah, and all, all the money is in saying that you know. There, there's no money to be said in that you don't know something. Nobody knows so. anything,
1: Brian. Nobody knows anything about anything.
0: <laughs> I don't know. We did a pretty good job on this. Uh, I don't know. My my phone. Guides me around town when I Uber drive pretty well. Are you still doing that? Oh, fuck no. (laughs) Only when I'm super desperate.
1: Right. Right, man. Yeah. Um, But going back quickly to this whole uh, oil climate change business, um, to me, it seems like the height of, of arrogance for us to... You know, they always bandy about this 98% of scientists, and I mean, the whole thing is obfuscated by by media, by the fact that, you know, everybody has a voice now. It's more of an emotional issue than it is a, a science issue now. Um, I totally agree with you that this whole man-made climate change thing is, is complete horseshit. Now, listen, are we are we influencing the climate? 100%. Are we changing it? Well, that's a different story. I mean, look, go to Beijing, right? you got to wear a fucking gas masks to walk around the streets of Beijing. So are we influencing the climate there? Or you better believe your ass we are.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Right? But you know what George Carlin said about this? <laughs> I think it was in 1992. He said, you know, the planet is fine. The people are fucked.
0: Yes. Agreed. <laughs> totally agree. Yep. Oh, ma'am, did you, you went looking for a missing plane?
1: Yeah. So, um, how I was involved in that, uh, I don't really want to get too much into, but let's say that I have intimate firsthand knowledge about the MH370 search.
0: Let's, let's um, retell the story of, of what that
1: was. <laughs> sure. Uh, to the best of my memory, a plane left, was it Singapore, bound for Malaysia? Or I believe it was. And uh, at some point during the... Where was it going? It was going to China? I can't remember where the plane was going. It was a Malaysian Airlines flight. And by the way, Malaysian... I just air,
0: remember that it was a Malaysian Airlines flight. Yep, right.
1: and, and that no longer exists, by the way, because they had another plane not too long after they got shot down over the Ukraine. So Malaysian Airlines was nationalized, disbanded, and rebranded as something else. Uh, so it doesn't exist anymore. But the plane went missing at some point, disappeared from all radar, and you know it went poof, <laughs> effectively as Joseph Farrell uh, always frames it. It went poof. So they did their best based on you know last known locations, yada yada yada, to try to find where the plane had uh, had gone. Uh, and you may remember at the time, there were all sorts of nonsensical theories about how it was hijacked, taken to Iran, um, uh, the pilot would kill himself, yada, yada. So mm-hmm. no one knows, right? No one knows what happened. So ultimately what happened was, is that the uh, it was decided that it had crashed somewhere in Australian waters. That's how Australia got involved. Um, the Malaysian government and the Chinese government all got together and they said, okay, we're going to fund a search for this plane. So there were four, four boats involved in the search. Three of them uh, worked for one sort of uh, positioning company, and one, I think, was a Malaysian Navy vessel. And these vessels, well, here's the one, The big problem was that the water is so deep. Right out in the Indian Ocean, it's some of the deepest water uh in the world and and we're talking about five thousand meters here, man, which is that's that's so fucking that's, deep
0: <laughs> yeah it you you can't conceptualize the depth and the pressure and the insanity of that yeah,
1: so listen to this, this is gonna blow your mind. What they had to do is they had to deploy um this thing called a, it's a sonar, effectively. And what this sonar does is using high-frequency acoustic signals and the return of those signals, it can make a sort of topographic map of the seabed, right? Like a 3D sort of digital model of the seabed.
0: Sure. We had a little, we had a fish finder on our boat. Yeah, sure. Back in uh, in 88. Yeah.
1: Just like that, right? Um, You know, and these, of course, are survey grade, which means you can get, uh, you know, centimeters out of the accuracy and if there's something on the seabed they'll fucking find it i mean it's unequivocal a uh, uh, full stop if something is there they'll find it but that problem is is you have to get that device really close to the seafloor i mean you can't do this from a kilometer above the sea a seafloor you have to get that thing down to an operating depth uh, or an operating height above the seabed so we're talking about deploying this sonar thing at these tremendous depths right But the thing is, is that this sonar device is connected to a surface vessel via a cable, all right?
0: I was gonna say, is it cabled, okay. Okay,
1: now there are are AUVs, autonomous underwater vehicles, and we did use some of those in the search, and you can basically just program a search path or a a travel path, and it has a very, very precise, you know, like million dollar inertial unit in it, so over uh, X number of days or whatever, this thing will be just fine. Um, doing its survey autonomously and then you just basically take a big fish hook and pull it out of the water when it comes back to the surface but we had uh-huh. these things that were uh, connected via a cable now listen to this dude <laughs> that cable was nine kilometers long from the vessel to the sonar nine oh, that- kilometers yeah that that's insane it would take the winch because there's a winch on that thing right to pay it out and pay it in when you wanted to change the position of the, of the, we call it the fish. So here's what we had to do. They had to put in a model of the seabed based on previous data. And this, the, there are mountains underwater. I mean, there's mountains underwater, right? Because there's mountains on the surface. It's just, they're just not covered by water. Right, right. So when that, that fish is, is doing its survey, they had to know about an hour or two ahead of time how much the elevation of the seafloor would change in case there was like a big mountain coming. So they have to like winch the fish in. So it goes higher. You know what I'm talking about? You can, you, you see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, here? Yeah. It yeah. would, it would take 15 minutes of the winch turning before that fish would move a centimeter.
0: Wait, 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 what? Okay. Say, that, say it again.
1: So if you want to change the altitude above the seabed of that fish,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: we, we would have a, we had a sort of screen that would show where the vessel and the seabed are in an hour's time. So there was like a collision alert that you would get, and you'd have to like pull the winch. You'd just press a button, and the winch would start pulling in the cable. But over 9 kilometers, you have this, it's called a catenary, and a catenary is just a suspended curve. So you can imagine that in the water, that 9 kilometer cable is not taut, right? It's a little bit loose,
0: yeah, it's, it's probably going to have some uh, curvy yeah, curve exactly, to it. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's called a catenary. So you'll just be you'll just be picking up like slack, exactly. straighten
1: it exactly. Yeah. And it would take 15 minutes before that fish would move an
0: inch higher. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even picture in my mind the size of all this machinery. Oh, you Fucking should! Amazing.
1: You should see these uh, these cable spools, like uh, a spool of thread, you know. And the cables themselves are so big and thick. It, it, it's just it, What what happens offshore in, in all this business, the, the the tech, the size, the thinking. I mean, my goodness. So ultimately, what happened was uh, the search went on for some number of years. Um, it turned out to be the largest underwater survey ever undertaken in the history of humanity. Uh, we now have the best um, data set for that part of the uh, of the world. I mean, one of the big goals uh, coming in the future is trying to map the seabed at very high precision, very, yeah, it was go- very it was, quickly.
0: I was, yeah, I was wondering. Um could this potentially—I don't mean to be a con- conspiracy nut, but just a a really great excuse to put some money to some great sea no. seabed mapping? No. Because or was this just no. an honest effort?
1: No, an honest effort. I mean, um, let's face it. That data really isn't that valuable to anybody other than Earth scientists. So— um, and the kind, and the kind yeah, of survey yeah. that was being done did not involve the technology needed to discover oil. We weren't using the, that type of equipment. It was just basically straight up seafloor mapping. It wasn't looking under the seabed, so to speak. So this, you know, and and of course, look, I'm not I'm not telling you I know everything. Um, but this was a really honest effort. It involved, you know, hundreds of thousands of man hours. Uh, because, you know, you've got these guys on these boats and they're out there on five-week rotations. Uh, millions and millions of dollars spent by the Chinese, Australian, and Malaysian governments. And um, their, to their credit, they have made that data. I don't know if it's public or semi-public, but they did give the data. Okay. They did give the data to the Australian scientists and whomever else wanted what
0: to it. What were the results it. of all this?
1: Uh, fuck all. They, they found totem. they found some shipwrecks. They got some nice maps of the seabed, um, but I. And then I,
0: then, so that makes me think. Let's see. Let's see. Let's <laughs> if, if someone knew, it would have to be a very few someones, because if it was multiple someones, you couldn't keep it a secret. And how would that be possible for a very very select someones to know? And could it possibly be an actual some one person? That's Mm. just pretty bizarre.
1: Well, let's just say that all governments lie. And let's just leave it at that.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, there is a very high likelihood that that... I do think that plane will be found. um, And uh, yeah, so there you are. (laughs)
0: I'm going to predict it'll be found in some hangar somewhere. Uh,
1: I think they'll find it on the seabed. Um, You know, I'm... Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm almost entirely confident to say that it it, it did crash. Uh, No, I don't know this for a fact, but based on what I do know, I think they will find it. and uh, I think they will find it in an area that... Look, if it had been in the area that that search was done in, they would have fucking found it. There's just no yeah, doubt if, about yeah. it. Oh, dude, you could find you could find a you could find a Volkswagen Beetle on the seabed. So you're certainly That's, you know yeah
0: yeah yeah.
1: So there you are.
0: What's next? What do we what what topic? Next topic. Uh, commas. What's commas. with you and commas? Commas.
1: Oh man, the use now of, we I the, think the this use is something and we... the use and misuse of commas. <laughs>
0: I think this is something we actually disagree on. All right. So here's my thing on commas. When writing, insert commas to indicate a pause for the reader. They're not necessarily grammatical. Mm. So as a writer, if I want to convey a message, I want to... I want the the reader to know when to pause, and that's all that that that's my only concern.
1: Well, you know, uh, Carrie Fisher said that everybody thinks that they have a sense of humor and good taste, but they possibly couldn't all have. Right, okay. and you know, I think I have really good taste in writing and, and grammar and such, so uh, I'm probably wrong about it. But yeah, I really get bothered when people use commas to indicate pauses. But with, but like, I, I, oh, here's probably here's probably what it is. It's probably because I spent far too much time on Twitter, uh, and I've been really thinking about how much time I spend on Twitter—far, far too much. And I think it does sort of change the way that the language is used, and there's no question about that uh and i
0: i think it's often used well, for well the- sure because it's because it's massively constrained which would definitely change the use yeah for sure
1: i really wish i had uh prepared better for this and, and had some examples to to share with you and your six listeners but um yeah i i am a bit of a, a not a nazi for that stuff but but uh, Poor communication just bothers me because I am ultimately a communicator. I hate the term science communicator because it sounds like so desperate to give yourself some gloss and I'm not a fan of glossing. Sure, sure. But that's what I do. You know, I communicate science to people and uh, the quality of your thoughts and the quality of your ideas is only as good as the quality of the language that you use to describe them. And I think that's probably my point of view is, is, is uh, you know, quality language will, will ultimately lead to quality outcomes. And, you know, you can see this writ large with, with what we talked about earlier in the conversation with, uh, you know, pink vagina hats and protesting science and stuff. Because ultimately, I think we're talking about language. Um, I don't know if you listened to Rogan's episode with Thaddeus Russell this week have you have you made i it... uh, no,
0: i i well i clocked out when they couldn't when they spent a half an hour on gender yeah exactly problems exactly. in sports
1: right so you know ultimately i think that comes down to a language issue uh you know how you identify is ultimately a a construct of language um and it really really bothers me because uh you know whatever you think about our culture there are a lot of good things about it: music, art, uh, literature. You name it, cooking.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Like for me, the comma usage is. Uh, believe it or not, I do attempt to be a storyteller mm, on Twitter right. at times, and that's that's my usage. I'm not uh, teaching anyone. Um, I'm just telling stories occasionally. Um, But being a science communicator uh, is beyond me. I'm not a scientist or no, I don't even pretend to be one. So that's different. (laughs) Well, I'm not really
1: a scientist either. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a dummy. I'm not that smart of a guy uh, at all. And uh, I am an autodidact. um, If I can get away with with using a fancy word at, at, you know, this early of an hour here in Singapore. Well, I guess it's pretty late for you. But, um, you know, a lot of this stuff I just taught myself. Uh, these things we've been talking hmm, about just the last few hours and asking lots of questions of, of, of really smart people who you know the thing for me is I can't dedicate myself to solely one thing like I could never study like you know this minute facet of this giant engineering problem I'd rather just take the holistic view so I know let's say a lot about a lot of things but I only know a little bit about it or I know a little bit about a lot of things yeah. rather you know
0: well the fact that you know that you don't know a lot is encouraging
1: uh, well, you know, I'm a teacher, ultimately, right? I teach people, so I, I really have to... I can't get called out in front, of a, in front of a room of people, you know? I have to always remain humble to the, the knowledge that I don't have.
0: Mm-hmm. And, what do you spend most of your time teaching, um, specifically? Offshore positioning. Oh, okay.
1: And right. that involves, you know, geodesy, GPS, acoustics, inertial navigation. So it's basically how do we go out offshore and get really accurate positions, whether it's under the water or on the water? I used to do that. Okay, so, I used to do that yeah. for land, the land surveying world. Um, when I before, yeah, it was
0: that was something when we first started. I was going to ask you about. Um, I see the men with the little trip, not yes. little tripods, giant tripods, yes. and the little the little spy lens. Yes uh monocular <laughs> mono, monoscope thing and um I, i've always wondered what the fuck are they doing and All what right, well, pays them
1: sure let's talk about that um Okay, so I cut my teeth in the world of land surveying uh, in the 90s and uh, up until around before I escaped the gulag of the United States, which which I I would be very glad to talk to you about as well if, if you're interested. But so let's talk about surveying what you're talking about. So there's these dudes with tripods and you'll often see like one dude looking through this instrument on the tripod and then another dude like carrying a pole, holding it vertically. He's
0: got a pole and he's just standing there. Standing there. Looking stupid. Looking yep. stupid, yeah. Yep.
1: And so what they're doing is they're doing... Doing some kind of surveying usually for um, upcoming construction um, or what they're doing is something called as-building which is measuring the existing positions of features and, and things so what that instrument does it's a it's called a, a total station and it measures distances and it measures angles so if you are standing on a known point you have a coordinate, and you put the total station. And you take that tripod, and what they do is that the, the tripod is leveled over that point. So the center axis of that instrument, uh, if you take a plumb bob, like, you know what that is? like a, Of course, yeah. You drop that. I'm
0: a ha- I'm a of course pretend I'm carpenter yeah, course. in my I know. yeah I'm a I'm a pretend carpenter in my real life. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so well, yep. yeah.
1: That was insulting to you. I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no so you know the plumb bob basically. So yeah, you, you have that point orientated in space on a known point, and so from that point you can then measure other points with very high accuracy. So you'll have one dude standing behind the the instrument, and he'll just turn it to shoot a beam of light at the guy standing there with the pole, and the pole has a mirror on it, and it just reflects back. So you're measuring points that way. But, you know, from the 90s, we built systems that you didn't need a dude standing behind the instrument. You could just stand behind the pole, and the instrument follows you automatically. And that's what a lot yeah, of them and do so, now. Uh,
0: and I'm sure this has been done since for, <laughs> forever, All they had, before they, computers, oh, before digital technology. Oh, dude. How are they, dude. How are they capturing the data
1: Back in the old, Ant. yeah, in the old days, what they had to do is before they had um, light-based measuring systems, they would actually use what are called uh, chains, and it was chainage instead of distance that we call it chainage. So they had an instrument. Measuring angles is really easy, right? You can measure angles. You can orientate the instrument. Uh, and by the way, one thing of speaking of language that I hate about American people is they use the word orient instead of orientate. I'm oriented a certain uh, way. No, you're not oriented. That's a recondite word for Asia.
0: You're orientated. Orientated. And that's, that sounds so foreign to me. Yeah, like that's, yeah. yeah. So
1: you have to orientate uh, the instrument like to the sun. You know, you can measure angles to the sun. The sun is predictable. Uh, measuring angles is very easy. I mean, that's how sextants work on, on, on the old ships, you know, when they would cross the mm-hmm. oceans. You know, you just measure angles. But uh, the old days, when like Lewis and Clark or whomever were, were, were exploring, you know you have to map stuff. I mean, it, surveying goes back to Egypt. You know what's the origin of surveying? Well, it's taxation. You own this much land. I know you own this much land because I measured it, so therefore you have measured to measure <laughs> <laughs> right. So how did they measure it? Well, they use a sextant to measure the angles, and then they would just use chains to measure distances. But can you imagine surveying across a country using chains? I mean Fuck it's that! Astounding. Fuck that, That's man. Amazing. And to make yeah. it, and, here, and here's something even more mind blowing. How do you measure elevation before you have GPS and a, and a geoid model? You have to start at the beach at or uh, somewhere where there's water, and you have to do what's called leveling, and that just measures the change in, in height between two points. Mm-hmm. And you can only do this over the distance that you can measure with this optical instrument. So people have spent their whole lives, thousands of people have spent their whole lives just going a few hundred meters at a time, a few hundred meters at a time to measure the change in elevation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, fuck that. Surveying in the old days sucked, man. And by the way, you know something, you know something interesting? Uh, when I was in school, we had a picture of Mount Rushmore in the building. <laughs> and below it, it said three surveyors and one other guy. Lincoln was, the, Lincoln was the only non-surveyor of the three guys oh on Mount my Rushmore. Oh, God.
0: That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> wow.
1: George Washington was the largest landholder in the United States. He was one of the richest men in America.
0: I, I actually I had no idea. Yeah, well,
1: what do you think that war was all about? It was a bunch of rich dudes that didn't, didn't, didn't like a bunch of other rich dudes.
0: No, it was about our freedom. Oh, sorry. That's right. From taxation.
1: America's number one.
0: Always and forever. Yeah.
1: Well, I used to be... An- Eagles, I- <laughs> bombs, and... <laughs> I used to be American. I'm not American anymore. I actually uh, disposed of my... Well, I, I was lucky that I um, was actually not born in the United States, uh, even though... Like, my dad was military, and if you give birth to a child in Europe, they will give that child citizenship just by virtue of the fact that you just popped him out on that, that patch of earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a European passport just as a twist of fate because, you know, my old man was just a military guy and he was in okay. Europe and just, you know, knocked my mom up and they had me on foreign soil. So I was able to, and I realized that I could do this. I think I was in my mid-20s or so when I realized that I was like, holy shit, I wasn't born here. And if I just tap my birth certificate from that other country, I can go to that country and I can get a passport. And that's what I
0: did. Oh.
1: Yeah. And when and that I,
0: was your out.
1: Well, yeah, I used it. I basically used it from the time I... I mean, I've been gone on about 10 years now from the States. And uh, from my mid to my mid-20s to my mid-30s, I would go to Europe on vacations and stuff. And I would leave the country on my American passport, enter Europe on my European passport. And then uh, I never had to have visas or never had to go through all the bullshit just to get into Europe. And then... Um, had a really shitty time, dude. The years like 2002 to 2008 were just fucked up, man. I had a really bad marriage. Uh, I had my I had a business that ultimately failed because of the recession. I went bankrupt because of medical bills. Um, you know, I used to have a good corporate job. I started my own little company in you know in the world of surveying, and you have to buy your own insurance. But the, you know, the threshold on what they'll pay out was just pretty low and had a couple of surgeries. And next thing you know, uh, I'm divorced, I'm bankrupt. Uh, And also, you know, for years I had been... It's very hard to explain, but I'll try my best. And I I think it's just the background noise of the United States was so loud in my ears that... uh, yeah, I guess this is the obligatory podcast origin story, right? Um, you know, I would have moments where I would just sit in my car, like in a park or or somewhere, and I would almost just wish I could disintegrate because I couldn't... I was vibrating so much from the, the pressure of my divorce, my failing business, my, my medical bills, that I just... I thought there has to be a better way. You know, I, I get one shot at this whole life thing and... You know, so what I did is I, I <laughs> you know, I paid my taxes, I um, declared bankruptcy, so I left with a clean slate, and
0: mm-hmm. uh, I moved to the Netherlands. I went to Amsterdam. So that's, the, that's a curious choice. You moved to one of the highest taxation places on the planet.
1: Well, at the time, I was a bit more in a different mind about things. I was a bit more, I had a bit more socialist leanings back then. Like my tax burden in the United States was pretty low because I was a business owner. So I wasn't paying a lot of tax and it never really occurred to me what it would be like to pay a lot of tax. Um, And, you know, like a lot of American people, I had uh, certain fantasies about life in Europe. Uh, So, luckily, I was in a place where, you know, even though I was in sort of financial trouble, I still had a a few grand, you know, sort of in the bank, but it was nowhere near enough to pay my debts. Um, So, uh, what I did is I paid my debt down as much as I could, sort of got broke, so I sold a bunch of stuff. I had some instruments and some things that were sort of valuable, so I had a a little bit of money on me, and, you know, I I, I, I just took, took off. I had enough money to live for for about a year and a half without having to work. So I went to Amsterdam, uh, Amsterdam, you know, I say it the Dutch way now, um, you know, almost 10 years, you know, living in, in the Netherlands, sort of, when I'm not traveling. And uh, man, I tell you what, it was equally the worst and best experience of my life because I, you know, I, I left my home, I left my, my family, I left my friends, I left my culture and found myself living in a shared apartment in Amsterdam one day, just out of the blue, you know, and thank goodness I had enough dough to sort of just kind of hang out for a while, you know, mm-hmm. at the time I was in my mid thirties and I had never not worked. I'd worked since I was effectively 12 years old, just doing, you know, the paper routes and odd jobs, just, cause, you know, I, like you, I think we both kind of grew up with a wooden spoon in our mouths. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, uh, Yeah. So, you know, here I am in the Netherlands and I had all this time on my hands to just sort of just walk around Amsterdam and and hang out and go to coffee shops and, uh, you know, coffee shops in Amsterdam is code for the marijuana. Uh, Oh, I see. Right. A cafe is where you have coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then I, I sort of ran out of money and had to do some things that I'm not so proud of to survive you know I, I definitely took advantage of some people's well you know kind hearts mm-hmm. um, but you know the odd thing was the whole time I never was worried I know I had a few times where I had nowhere to sleep and had no food but at the same time I was as calm as I'd ever been in my life because I was I was, I was I was free you know and it took me a really long time to put this all into context and, and as I look back now You know, I I look at America and I just look at everything is punitive, everything is punitive. They're looking for ways to get, you know, it's like your arms get shorter and your pockets get deeper. And that's that's just what I think of the United States, because even everything is a vector to the legal system. And what I mean by that is driving a car is a vector to the legal system. don't pay your traffic fines, you know, you'll get shot in the head when the SWAT team comes to get you, like that poor woman in Atlanta or wherever it was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's a police state, and there can be absolutely no argument that will convince me otherwise of that, right? And and, and you look at the the social system, the social injustice and you know towards you know, fathers and mothers and children. It's just I I cannot think of anything that ever happened in my lifetime where I could look at the government and say, you know, they're 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 doing something to help me. And whatever you think about the government, you know, you are the government. The government just doesn't come from an alien planet. The government is composed of Americans. And often, you know, it's been said that people get the government they deserve, and I, I don't know if it's really true in this case, it's probably a bit off the scale here. But You know, I wasn't willing to live, I call it a regime. It's a regime, you know, a big bank, uh, defense contractor, police state. And the attitude, especially in the Netherlands, is the exact opposite of that. And I'm not trying to tell you that the government there is benevolent, because they certainly aren't. But when you are in the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Germany, to a lesser extent the UK, especially Scandinavia. There is a a silence there. And I believe that silence is attributed directly to the mental field that we all share, you know, like people have, a, mm. it's often been said that you should never do the crossword puzzle in the morning, you should always do it in the afternoon. And the reason why you should do the daily crossword puzzle in the newspaper in the afternoon is because everybody's already done it by then.
0: Already figured it out, right? Collective consciousness, yes, uh, absolutely. very Jungian. Yeah, you know, and I,
1: I only subscribe to that idea through my experiences. Because you can only describe your life in terms of the experiences that you've had. And that's the problem with a lot of the discourse these days is because a lot of people haven't had experiences. So they're trying to proscribe those experiences for other people. But through my experience of going through what I went through in the United States and going to the Netherlands, I mean, my goodness, man, the, the, background, the background noise is so much lower it's almost like you can just listen to the birds, you can hear the wind blow and you can just go, man, I have never felt so peaceful because my anxiety, you know, that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach, you know, when you're nervous about something. I mean, I lived with that for, for 15 years.
0: Yeah, I, it doesn't go away for me. So yeah. You
1: know, it never did for me either. And, you know, and if it did go away, it would go away just because I'd go do deadlifts or something for or, you know, I'd go to the gym and I'd get it out that way or I'd play music You know, I'm a guitar player. And I'd get it out there, but it would always return. You know, you could ameliorate it for a small amount of time, but you could never eliminate it. And, you know, after my marriage went to shit, my business went to shit, my finances went to shit, you know, I I, I said, well, okay, I'm going to do my best to, to find a way. So, you know, I basically cried every day for a year after I left. Um... But eventually, you know, that, that pain goes away a little bit more and more every day. The, the after effects of those experiences become less and less every day. And eventually, I found myself coming back to this sort of just the noise in my head, the noise in my heart, the noise in my guts had just gone. It just went away. And I, I mean, I got to the point, like I said earlier, I was broke, man. I had no food. I had nowhere to live. I had nowhere to stay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I still, at the same time, I was as calm as it could be. And then yeah, I, yeah. I got this job that, uh, with this company that I still have to this day. And I started to pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, the way it works, and this is sort of interesting for your, for your six American listeners. Um, mm-hmm. People think that Europe is a sort of um, a bandwagon, you know, where everybody's getting this for free and that for free. In the Netherlands, you have to buy health insurance. You are legally required to buy health insurance. Hey, that sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Right? And if you don't buy health insurance, they will fine you the amount that it costs to buy the insurance. But nevertheless, you know, you go to the hospital, you're going to get taken care of. But, you know, you have to buy health insurance. So, okay, buy health insurance, fine. You know, I've had some pretty fucked up shit happen to my body the past few years, and it's been taken care of immediately, professionally. I've had no residual costs. I mean, I think we have a deductible every year of about $400 that you have to pay. So, you know, they're into you. They're into you for about two grand a year before you go to a doctor, right? Okay. So... Mm On paper, you go, well, you know, I don't know how I feel about that, even if I never get sick. But if you do get sick, you know, know, no one, no one's losing their house because they get sick. No one's worried about their costs just because they get sick. Now, there are some people that, you know, I've read about that have got some bills, but it's not thousands. You know, it's it's more in the range of hundreds. And, but, you know, I'm, I make a pretty good living and I pay 52% of my salary in tax. Now, it's not an aggregated 52%. You know, the first X amount is at this level. The second amount is at this level. But a lot of my income comes mm-hmm. comes from my travel. So I get paid every day I'm away from home. Mm-hmm. And they tax that. At, and it's over 50% of my income. And they tax it at 52%. And
0: That's, a, that's an outrageously
1: high number. It's outrageous. And then compounding that, uh, we have sales tax. They call it, um, what do they call it in Holland? I can't remember. It's a horrible language. Um, 22 percent i think is the sales tax
0: so you know if you look at what for for buying consumables yeah for buying i guess
1: uh, you know you go out and you want to buy some new set of wine glasses or you know whatever a new watch yeah everything i think food tax is a little bit lower but if you aggregate all of the taxes you know income tax sales tax um road tax i mean i don't drive so i don't have to worry about that but I think I read that you're paying upwards of 60 some percent in, in, in taxes, you know, and look, I mean, uh, we could have a whole nother conversation about taxation. That that would get us absolutely nowhere, but there is a level, there is a level at which it becomes sort of criminal and, you know, I don't have children. I don't, uh, have family, so. You know, children under 18, people over the retirement age, I think it's 67 now, they get free health care. Um, but I can't for the life of me see how I am personally getting any benefit from paying all these taxes. And of course, that's a bit solipsistic of me and, you know, one man world kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's my life. These are my experiences. So, you know, my feeling about the Netherlands has really soured over the last few years because I don't know where all this money is going. I mean, a huge component of it must be social welfare because a lot of people don't work. Um, Huge welfare bill, huge pensions bill. Um, But, you know, the government's always talking about raising taxes, raising taxes. And I just think, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for what? What the hell is going on?
0: Raising opportunity might be a better approach. <laughs> well,
1: look, I, yeah, but, you know, anytime the government gets involved in anything, and this is ultimately where my problems with socialism um, and the left are manifested, is that the only a- answer that the left has ever really had is more tax. Well, more tax means more government. And you've got 5,000 years of history to look at governments, and very few of them have ever done anything good. <laughs> You know, and I'm not going to do the George Santayana thing. I'm not going to repeat the past. So I look at the future, and I'm in the process of getting the hell out of the Netherlands. I'm, I'm in Singapore right now. I spend a large amount of my year, my year, my time in each year in Singapore, whether it's for work or... I take all my vacations here, right? When I have time off, I come to Singapore. And, uh, yeah, is Singapore a perfect place? I mean, come on. It's Disneyland with the death penalty, as it was described by... Uh, who's that guy jitterbug perfume what's his name Tom Robbins maybe is that his name Uh, described it as Disneyland with you know can you hear me now
0: all right hey um, yo this is this is really good and I actually want to continue Yes, I can. Okay, great. Uh, this is this has been just absolutely fucking incredible. Thank can you. We continue another night. Absolutely,
1: let's do that. I know we've been talking for an hour and a half, so um, let's.
0: Yeah, do- let's just. Sure. Let's just say let's just say good night for now and do it again.
1: Let's do that. Well, hey, thank thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it.